was visiting Ricky and Ashley and listening in the, in the hospital when the physician came in to give instruction. And the physician is talking about if your daughter turns this color, that's a problem. And if she turns this color, it's not a big deal. If she eats this much, that's not a big deal. If she doesn't eat this much, that's a big deal. Talking about what to do, talking about how long before you can leave the house. And I want to say the physician said something like six weeks, like no contact with outside people for six weeks. And I'm thinking, my goodness, that is so much longer than what we were told just four and a half years ago uh, when Zach was born. And, and so it seems like when we look back, um, we look back at the next generation, we say, wow, really protective of kids, that the, the rules get tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and, and some of you that are grandparents might even say, my kids are guilty of spoiling their kids. It doesn't happen at this church. It might happen at other churches. It doesn't happen in our family, but it might happen in families that you know. Uh, and, and so none of us want to be guilty of spoiling our kids. If they don't learn to work, they grow up not knowing how to work, and that's problematic. If they grow up as the center of attention, they think they're the center of their world, and that's problematic. Here are a couple examples of spoiling that I found. One seven-year-old girl for her seventh birthday her parents spent $7 million on a private jet to celebrate their seventh birthday. Uh, one little girl for her birth, first birthday had a $200,000 party highlighted by an $80,000 diamond-crusted Barbie. So, again, I know we don't spoil our kids, but there are some people, uh, there are some grandparents even, <laughs> who spoil kids. We generally agree that spoiling kids is bad, that it's not helpful to their development, it doesn't make them well-rounded people. Um, what's interesting is that for many of us, we approach our relationship with the Lord wanting to be spoiled, right? Because we, we don't want adversity, we don't want difficulty. The moment something tragic, the moment something undesirable, the moment something uncomfortable happens, we run to God and say, God, how could you? We question his judgment, we doubt his goodness, in some instances, abandon faith altogether, uh, revealing in our hearts what we're looking for, which we want to be spoiled. We want easy street. We want red carpet. We want a life free of pain and suffering. And so as we start into Genesis 22 this morning, I just want us to consider, and our first point for you, for you note takers, is that we have a God who cares enough about our spiritual development to even allow some adversity, call it testing, to even allow some adversity and to intentionally test us to grow our faith. We have a God who cares enough about our development to test our faith. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 22. I'm going to read the first two verses and then we'll pause. I promise we'll get through the rest of it, but we're going to start with just two verses. I want you to see this test that God brings to Abraham. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. After these things, that being Isaac being born and the first few years of his life, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Okay, so there's some repetitiveness there. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Offer him there on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham and Sarah had just crossed the finish line of life. They had been waiting decades for their son, the child of promise, Isaac. And now Isaac's there. And God comes and he says, I'm not 
done yet. I've got more for you. I'm not done yet. I've got more for you. And I want us to see that God tests Abraham shortly after Abraham thinks he's crossed the finish line. And the reason that's significant, and I feel like I can see it all throughout my life, is many of us tend to break life into these artificial segments. And we just try to do whatever we can to get through the difficulty of this season, hoping and believing that after this season, if we can just endure it, we can get back to that green grass, red carpet, Everything is good. Everything is comfortable. We're constantly trying to get back to this this life of ease, life of comfort. Uh, No fear, no pain, no difficulty, no suffering, no stress. And so when we do that, when we break life into these compartments, uh, we miss what's right in front of us. Because we see our circumstances and our relationships as barriers to our happiness, barriers to our comfort, rather than divinely orchestrated relationships, events, and circumstances that the Lord is putting before us to teach us to see and to savor Jesus. I don't know what it looks like in your life. We've had four or five babies born in the last few months, and so for those families, they are going to be really excited when their newborn is sleeping through the night, thinking, once he or she sleeps through the night, I'll be well-rested, I'll be filled with energy, patience, joy, grace. And then the child sleeps through the night and the mother or the the father thinks, I can't wait until they're out of diapers. Because when they're out of diapers, we'll have all of this discretionary income. Life will be wonderful. And then they get out of diapers and we think, I can't wait till they're in school. When they're in school, I'll have all this time all day, like nine to three. I don't even know what I'm going to do with all that time. I'll probably exercise and go for long walks and read a book. What am I going to do with all this free time that I have on my hands? And then they get into the school. I think, when are they going to drive? Because I am tired of shuttling around morning and night all day. I do nothing but shuttle. And then they can drive. When are they going to be out of the house? When do I get my house back? When can I actually buy a sofa or a chair or something that I like? And I'm not worried about it getting destroyed by the boys wrestling. And it goes on for adults with our jobs. When am I going to get a job that I like? When am I going to get an advancement in that job that I like once I've got the job? If I get an advancement, when am I going to be able to buy the house or buy the car that I like? When am I going to be able to pay off the car or the house that I like? When are we going to be able to get the RV? When are we going to get to pay off the RV? And so we break life into these seasons and these sections, often showing what the desire of our hearts are to get to this easy, comfortable place rather than seeing all of our circumstances, all of our relationships as divinely orchestrated or allowed relationships and events that teach us to see and to savor Jesus. And and so we see in this story with Abraham that it's not about Isaac, right? The story, the narrative of Abraham is not all about this child being born. It's not all about Isaac, right? It's what God's doing in and through this and what we learn about who he is and how that relates then uh, to our lives. So if you're someone who's got something that you've got your bullseye on. Could be retirement, could be a medical diagnosis, could be a financial situation, could be a job, it could be relationships. I would say don't build everything with that as the finish line. 
that because you might be missing what God is doing that is unique to that season that is going to be vital for the next. And so we see that God tests Abraham at the precise moment that Abraham thinks we've arrived. We're there. God says, I'm not done yet. Secondly, from the first two verses, we see that God asks Abraham to give up his most treasured possession. Right? His most treasured possession. How many of you know that the things that God gives us that we love the most, that we hold the tightest to, are often the things that are the biggest threat to fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because we come to love the gift rather than the gift giver. We come to love the gift rather than the gift giver. It made me think of our daughter. She got a a bunny when she turned seven. And she loves her bunny. She holds her bunny. She cuddles her bunny. She talks to her bunny. She pets her bunny. Bunny comes in the house. Bunny goes out of the house. Bunny is never supposed to come into the house. She loves it so much that she smothers it. And so when she smothers it and she sets it down, it bolts. And she can't understand why the bunny runs away from her. That doesn't make sense. She loves the bunny. Why wouldn't the bunny return affection? She doesn't understand why the bunny scratches her arms. And so she loves the bunny so much. uh, And that leads her to suffocating the bunny. And that leads her to pushing the bunny away. And so I I would just say, when God is going to come and do open heart surgery on us, he's going straight for the heart. And he comes to Abraham and he says, do you love me more than this gift? Knowing that if Abraham loves that gift, loves his son more than he loves God, that will undo all of the good things that God has planned for him. That that will kill the enjoyment of that gift. That will kill the good things God wants to do in and through that gift. And that Abraham will smother that gift. God's gift will do irreparable harm in Abraham's life. It is, it is not enjoyed and celebrated as an act of worship to the king. Third, from those first few verses, we see that God moves to test his servant Abraham without notifying Abraham of his plans. So the narrator tells the reader, this is a test. There is no narrator telling Abraham, this is only a test. And so I believe Abraham is prepared for this moment, but Abraham is not notified in advance that it's coming. If you're in a season of trial now, I want to say to you, I believe that God cares about you enough to have prepared you for this trial, for this test. But I've not met very many people that were notified in advance that it was coming. Part of following Jesus is this perpetual uh, mystery as we are followers, not leaders, right? Where he's driving uh, I'm in the back seat where he's leading, uh, I'm following. And we see throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, that God is, is testing his people and for good reason. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 16. I just want to read verse 4, just one verse, but it, it helps us to see that this is a pattern that the Lord is doing for his people's good. In Judges 2 and 3, he tests his people by foreign oppression. Will they stay faithful despite foreign opposition? In Exodus 15 and 16, he tests his people, the Israelites, in the wilderness by making water and food scarce in the wilderness. Listen to Exodus 16, verse 4. This is shortly after the Lord has said, I'm going to bring food out of the sky. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out, and they will gather a day's portion every day, and that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Whether they will walk in my law or not. God's going to bring food out of the sky. He's going to say, pick enough for that day only and see if they follow his instructions. He's going to say on the sixth day, pick enough for two days and see if they follow his instructions. If they follow his instructions, they are positioned to move forward and take hold of the good things that he has for them. If they can't follow his instruction, no matter what he does, they're going to ruin James 1 adds to this our understanding of testing in verses 2 and 3 of 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, here it is, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you think you might be in a test, Stay the course. God has good in mind for you. It kind of makes me think of uh, learning to kneeboard. How many of you have ever kneeboarded? It's not something that very many people do anymore, and it almost ages you because now it seems, well, like 15 years ago people started wakeboarding or 30. When I learned to kneeboard, nobody told me what to do. And so a kneeboard, for those of you that aren't uh, familiar, is a flat, somewhat pointy thing that you get on and you sit on with your knees, you strap in and you pull, get pulled behind the boat. And so it's a lot of fun. Now, when you wreck, what you're supposed to do is let go of the rope. And no one told me when I first tried to let go of the rope. And so after crashing, trying to get up my very first time, doing something new and scary, which is not in my DNA ever, eh, forever, never amen. So I'm getting dragged behind the boat. Now, it felt like I was going 100 miles an hour. I was probably going 10 because I was like 8 but the water is in my eyes, the water is in my nose, the water is in my mouth, the water is in my face. I can't see anything. It feels like everything is coming faster. Sometimes when we're in a testing situation, it feels like we're being drugged behind the boat at 100 miles an hour, even if it's only 10, because the water is in our face, in our eyes, in our nose, and we can't see anything, and everything is coming fast. And I would just say, if that's where you're at today, hold tight to the Lord, because he's got good for you there. He's got good for you there. Uh, let's pick back up in the text, Genesis 22. Let's read verses 3 through 10. Uh, let's see Abraham's response. The first point this morning was simply, God cares enough about us, cares enough about who we are, cares enough about our joy to test our faith. And then the second point is faith shows itself through our obedience. Faith shows itself through our obedience. Faith is not uh, the same thing as knowledge. Faith shows itself through our obedience. Genesis 22, 3 through 10. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, here I am my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where, where's the lamb 
for the burnt offering. Now, if you're walking with your son after three days of thinking, but nothing other than what is happening and why has God asked me to do this? What is God thinking? And your son looks up and you're feet or yards away from the spot where you're going to build an altar. And he says, Dad, we've got fire, we've got a knife, but no animal for the offering. Uh, Do you think Abraham looks him in the eyes? Do you think Abraham has tears running down his face at this point? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. Abraham said, so they went both of them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son and then pause. Do you see that Abraham's faith showed itself through his obedience as he wakes up early in the morning, gathers everything, goes and follows the instructions exactly as the Lord had said. And so we see that our faith is shown through immediate obedience, through immediate obedience. He wakes up early in the morning and goes. Now, it's immediate even though he doesn't have a clue what he's doing or why. It's immediate without demanding an explanation from the Lord. It makes me think of Ian, my son. I tell him to do something, and one of the things that comes out of his mouth the fastest when he doesn't want to do something, Dad, can you just tell me why? And at this point, he's bubbling over with frustration. And he's not saying, Dad, can you tell me why? Because I really want to do this exactly as you've told me to honor you. I want to make sure it's right the first time. Not what's going through his head. What's going through his head is, Dad, can you tell me why? Because if it doesn't make sense to me, I don't want to do it. If I don't like the outcome, I don't want to do it. Dad, can you tell me why? If the priority or if the outcome lines up with something he values, then he springs into action. And so it's disobedient from a son to a father, but it captures the essence of the way we often go to the Lord as he asks us to do something, as he points us in a direction. And if we don't get the why, if we don't get the full explanation, if we don't get the 10-year plan, God, can you just tell me why as we drag our feet slowly? And we see Abraham here immediately gets up and he goes. And he finally goes. This is our 13th message on Abraham. We have waited for 13 weeks to see Abraham as the hero of faith that Hebrews talks about him as. And so I say finally, I say after 13 weeks, and I hope that emphasizes to us that we serve a God of second chances, right? There's so many unanswered questions in this passage. Why does Abraham say the things that he does to the two servants? Why does he say what he does to his son? What motivates him? What is he hoping for? What is he intending to do exactly? We're not sure, but through it all, we see his unwavering commitment to be obedient to the instructions of his father. We see that his faith is revealed by immediate obedience. We also see that his faith is obedient or is uh, revealed by blind obedience, by blind obedience. 
do you guys do when the Lord asks you to do something and he doesn't give you the next explanation? What do you do when he asks you to do something and you can't see how it makes sense? How do you do when he asks you to do something and you would say, that's actually not something I'm good at. I don't know if you missed it, Lord. I'm not good at that. That's not comfortable for me. There's this person over here, my brother, my friend. They're so good at that. They're so patient. You should, you should uh, ask them. How do you do when God doesn't give you uh, the full picture? Some of you are watching family members, sons, daughters, siblings, parents, uh, relationships. You're watching someone you care about kind of go down in a downward spiral right now. Uh, are you filled with uh, a sense that there is a powerful God who loves that family member more than you do? Or are you filled with despair as you grieve what you perceive to be an inevitable loss? How do you do when you can't see the outcome of something that matters to you? Maybe you're watching marriage, relationship, finances, or career health erode. And you can't see where it's going. Does that cause you to reorient yourself around Jesus? that cause you to want to go crawl in a hole and never come out. Abraham has no clue. He is there. He is in that moment of despair. Uh, he is blind to what God is doing, and he continues to obey. Last, from that portion of the text, our faith is revealed by complete obedience. So Abraham has been directed to go somewhere that he doesn't know yet where. Uh, and he starts walking, and God shows him where he needs to go as it becomes necessary. He's told to do something to his son that doesn't make sense. And so Abraham obeys today and trusts God for his tomorrow. Abraham goes through with everything that God has instructed him to do. Everything that he knows God has asked, he does. Instead of fixating on what he doesn't know, on what doesn't make sense, on what seems difficult, or what seems unsavory. This is, a, this is a tough one for me, obeying today, trusting God for tomorrow, uh, because I want to know what five years looks like. I really even want to know what 10 years and what 20 years looks like. That's just kind of my personal heaven on earth, this nice 50-year plan and everything goes according to it. And so most of you know that that's not real life. Um, but if you're someone who, who likes to try to think in those terms, uh, your long-term thinking makes sense to you. It sounds like wisdom to you. It might be useful in some contexts, but it can be detrimental to faith. It can be detrimental to following Jesus because essentially what we would do is we reduce God's instructions to what makes sense to me. We strip his instructions. We strip his intentions for us of everything that might require a step of faith, and then we wonder why our faith doesn't grow. If you're a long-term thinker, if you kind of pride yourself in being pragmatic, those are wonderful things in some contexts. They can be detrimental to our faith. And so we see here, to his credit, finally, after so many wrong turns, Abraham gets it. He says, I don't need the 10-year plan. I don't need to understand this. This is about God, a known God, going with Abraham into an unknown circumstance. And Abraham saying, I'll go with you there, God. I'm good with that. Let's go. Flip back to Genesis 22, if you have your finger still there. Let's read 11 through 24. I want us to see that not only does God care about us enough to test our faith, our faith is then revealed in our obedience, but that ultimately our obedience today prepares us uh, for God's tomorrow. Genesis 22, 11 through 24. 
Verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and if you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham must have thought God was cruel and unusual. I think many of us have been there. I think looking around, looking at our circumstances, seeing no light at the end of the tunnel, and feeling like God in some way is cruel and unusual, or maybe just negligent. And so it's neat that when Abraham is interrupted, that his response is to build an altar and his response is to call it, this is the place where the Lord provided. And so we don't see Abraham go through God's test and then look back at it begrudgingly. We don't see Abraham go through God's test and then look at it resenting what God has done in his life because the outcome of God's testing in our life is that steadfastness that James talks about. The outcome of God's testing in our lives is a deeper sense of conviction that an all-powerful, all-good God is here with us, attentive to our situation, involved in our relationships, strategically working for our good, despite at times the bad that we see. And so Abraham gets it. And I hope that's encouraging to you because many of us are in a spot right now where we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Many of us are at a spot right now where it's just looking all ugly. And Abraham pauses and offers a sacrifice and says, this is the place where the Lord has provided. Um, Verse 12 uh, is the Lord speaking. It says, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything, for now I know that you fear God. I don't know if any of you, when you read that, thought, really? That's what this is all about? Fearing God, like, couldn't God have asked Abraham? I'm sure it had to go through Abraham's mind. Hey, God, I'll give you like 15 different ways you could have done this. That would have been a lot easier. I wouldn't have to travel anywhere. I wouldn't have had to be freaked out for three days with my son. Uh, turn with me to Proverbs 1, if you have your Bibles. Proverbs 1, 7 speaks about the fear of the Lord and how integral it is to life. Because I want us to see that what God has done in taking Abraham through this blessing, or this testing, what God has done asking Abraham, do you love your son? Do you love the gift that I've given to you more than me, more than the gift giver, is to build in Abraham the fear of the Lord. Verse 7 of Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All that we need for life and faith, all that we need to follow Jesus, all that we need to walk the path that he's given to us 
begins with the fear of the Lord. And it leads us to that righteous living. It leads us to that holy living. It makes us righteous people. It makes us holy people. Uh, Listen to what the Bible talks about with regards to righteousness. Because I want you just to see that God's testing is for our good. And we want to even invite it, believing that if God deems it necessary for testing, that there is good for us that we want, that we can't yet see, that we want to trust him for. Psalms 5.12 says, The Lord blesses the righteous and surrounds them like a shield. I want to be surrounded like a shield with the Lord. I want to walk daily with that sense of confidence that I have a shield around me everywhere I go. You think about Psalms 23 and what David says in there. You know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Don't we want to not fear evil, but actually never go through the valley of the shadow of death, the place that leads us to discover that with God we don't have to fear evil? Psalms 5.12 says, The Lord blesses the righteous and surrounds them like a shield. Psalms 27.21 says, None of the steps of the righteous shall slide. If you've done any hiking around here, your steps have slidden at some point. That's how I actually broke my last cell phone. Uh, one of the hikes. That was great. Uh, when your feet slide out from under you, right, you lose your bearings. When your feet slide out from under you, all sorts of bad things can happen, including broken cell phones and hurt backs. Psalms twenty-seven, twenty-one says, The steps of the righteous, none of the steps of the righteous shall, shall slide. First Peter 3.12 says, The Lord's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, but his face is set against the wicked. The Lord is actively making you righteous right now. That is a really, really, really good thing for you. Matthew 25, 46 says, The righteous will one day go to eternal life with the Lord. I just want us to see that at face value, chapter 22 does seem cruel and unusual. But when we can see it through God's eyes and realize that being made a more pure reflection of Christ, being made more holy, having a deeper conviction of our our Father's love for us, our Father's nearness to us, our Father's power over our circumstances and over our difficulties, that those things are worth any amount of suffering that might come into our lives because those things stay with us forever, carry us through all storms and open a treasure chest full of goodness from God. God is good in any way, shape, or form, and we believe he is perfectly good. He is going to give himself, leverage all of our circumstances, all of our relationships to continue to make us holy, to make us righteous. Verse 18 in chapter 22 is kind of unusual. It says this, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That might sound a little different than God's promises to Abraham thus far. So God's promises to Abraham thus far have been very one-sided. You know, my words, not not his. Abraham, you're not going to do anything right, but I am going to do all of this through you anyway. Now in chapter 22, we see the Lord say, because you have obeyed, because you have done this, because you have not withheld your only son, And then the covenant is reaffirmed. And interestingly, the construction of the covenant, this is the most emphatic way it is 
spoken to Abraham in any of the Genesis narrative. And so there's this really cool sense where you have God the Father looking down at Abraham, looking down at his child, saying, you passed the test. You did it. Oh, my goodness. No, as a father might look at a son or a daughter, knowing what good lay in that child's future because of the character, because of the integrity, because of the way this child fears the Lord. Uh, father, mother just knows good things are in store for that kid. Life will still be plenty difficult, but good things are in store for that kid because he's grounded, because his eyes are set on the father. It's also peculiar because we see what is kind of mysterious, uh, but this interplay between God doing a work and God's people having a part in it. And so there's some weird construction things in verse 18, which uh, many theologians will say emphasize Abraham's increased role in God's covenantal promise in and through this text. That it emphasizes Abraham's participation in it more here than anywhere else in the Genesis narrative. And so it's, it's almost as if God is saying, you passed the test, oh, now I get to involve you even more in what I'm doing. Now you get to be a part of what I'm doing even more. And part of that is mysterious because God does his work. He commands us to be obedient. We're obedient, but sometimes we're just not sure what our obedience yields. Sometimes we look at life like we're on a ride at Disneyland, and in a ride at Disneyland, there might be a steering wheel, and you can turn that steering wheel all you want, but it's not turning the car because the ride is doing the work, not you. And only the kids on the ride think that they're actually driving. The adults know better. So sometimes we look at life like that, that we're just kind of going through the motions. God determines everything. We have no part to play. And so it's interesting here that Abram's part in this is emphasized. And there's a pattern, actually, of that, of God involving his people, inviting them to weigh in on what he's doing, giving attentive ear to their requests. Uh, For example, Exodus 32. Uh, If you have your Bible, turn there. Exodus 32 is a great example This is Moses. This is the Israelites. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. While up there, God sees the people who have made the golden calf, who are worshiping the golden calf, who are dancing around the golden calf. And God says, oh, Moses, go. Go. Stop them. And and the Lord is furious. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 10. This is the Lord talking. Now, therefore, he says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'm going to start over, Moses. I'm done with them. We're going to make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. 
verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so you just you see this interesting interplay where the Lord invites Moses, listens to Moses, responds, reacts to Moses based on Moses' petition. We see that with Abraham uh, in Sodom. We see it in the New Testament as we're commanded to pray without ceasing and that we have a Father who is responsive to our prayers. And so it's really hard to parse. Where does what I do end and what God does begin? How do those things work together? It's hard to say precisely how they work together other than we be obedient to what we know God has called us today and we trust that he's leading, that he's using, that he's working all things together for his good. And so we see in this Abraham passage that it's not about Isaac, it's not just about the kid. It's about what God is doing. And we see Abraham finally, this pillar of faith, this example uh, that we can draw from despite his past mistakes, despite making the wrong turn over and over and over, that the God of second chances invites him back in, gives him another chance, and as he grows, tests his faith, not to take away good things, but to preserve the good things God wants to do in and through him. And Abraham finally rises to the occasion. And so we look at Abraham and we think, oh yeah, I want to be like that. Keep in mind, Abraham was obeying immediately with no clarity, no why question answered and obeyed completely without demanding any of those things from God. And so we see that Abraham has got it. We see that he has turned the corner from the fearful husband of the wife who ran from king king of Egypt and ran from Abimelech. We see that Abraham, an imperfect father, was willing to offer his son. Didn't need to go through with it. But it also points us to a very perfect heavenly father who did offer his son on our behalf. And so as we think about testing in our, lo- our own lives, some of you are there right now. And uh, we're not going to spend time this morning parsing between a test and just a season of difficulty. Just uh, suffice it to say, we want to take all of that to the Lord. We want to take all of that to the Lord. But the testing in your life may be to help you see that your way is not working and you need to follow his way. The testing that he's brought into your life may be to show you that your way is not working and he's got a better way. For some of us, he's testing us now, refining our faith. And kind of like a, like a pouting child who doesn't get his way, we're whining and complaining. And I would just say, as our view of God grows, as we understand that sometimes he brings testing into our life and certainly he has the power to prevent bad things from happening if there's difficulty, call it difficulty, call it testing in your life right now. You have a God that is powerful enough to have prevented it and if he's powerful enough to have prevented it, he's powerful enough to use it for your good and his glory. Sometimes we think about his power and say, how could he? Why would he? If I were him, I wouldn't have. He shouldn't. That's too much. He's powerful enough to have prevented it. He's powerful enough to leverage it for your good. I can't imagine being in Abraham's circumstances. Can you? I can't imagine being asked to give that up. Can you? But I want to say, like David, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
if you find yourself this morning someone who would say, uh, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, you're, I get it, I want to be spoiled by God, I want easy street. Pray that we would be a church that would ask God to work in us and through us rather than just do things for us, remove obstacles from our life, and take us to good points. That we would be a church that wants God to work in and through us, in our city, in our community, in our surroundings, in our family, not simply do good things for us, remove obstacles, and get us to places we want to go. Let's pray. Lord, we need to ask for faith this morning because we are limited by what we see. And what we see determines often what we think, Lord. And we see uh, with Abraham that what he saw was not what you were doing. What he saw, Lord, was just some of the circumstances. What he saw was just some of the details. And so give us an imagination, a hope-filled, faith-filled imagination, Lord, that you're active and you're involved in our relationships and our lives, leveraging them, Lord, to teach us the fear of the Lord, believing that is the foundation and the building block for being healthy and whole people, healthy and whole Christians, healthy and whole followers of Christ who are able to share in your work, who are able to point people to Jesus, Lord, who are able to live lives that bring you honor, that glorify you, that point others to you. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves this morning. Some of us just want good things from you, don't really want you. Some of us have long since fallen in love with the gifts and out of love with the gift giver. Lord, thank you that you don't let Abraham damage and destroy the good that you have for him, that you test his faith. Lord, thank you that we see him as an example, a hero in this sense. Would you do that in our hearts and our lives as well? Lord, we want to invite your work in our lives, even though it is difficult and painful. We believe that it's for our good. Would you help our unbelief? In Jesus' name we pray.